You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now our scripture reading is on page 1217 in the church Bible. And uh, every time you begin a new book of the Bible, uh, you notice that the page doesn't have a number, so you should look for page 1216, and 1217 uh, brings us to the first chapter of First Peter, and we've been uh, studying this chapter now for about three weeks, and uh, want us to read the first 12 verses. And while you're turning there, since I've actually known Crawford for I think about 48 years. Um, The answer to that question, how does it affect uh, your work being a Christian, I think from observation, although I'm ashamed to confess I've never pushed any work his way, um, the answer is it actually affects everything he does. Um, But he wouldn't notice that the way others would notice it which is how it should be, isn't it? Well, First Peter chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 10 to 12 this evening, uh, but let's read in from the beginning where we've been studying recently. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ 
and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. We begun to think about First Peter as a tract that was written by the Apostle Peter for Christians who were swimming against the tide in a pre-Christian world. And it's clear from what he says that already they were experiencing various kinds of testings, trials, afflictions, sufferings, uh, some of them the ordinary sufferings that come to us because we live in a fallen world, and doubtless, as Peter goes on to hint, sufferings that were added to that because these people had come to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the special shape of this letter for our own time is that pre-Christian times and post-Christian times become strikingly similar to one another. Uh, David mentioned this morning, what will our nation be like in 20, 30 years' time for those of you who will be around to see it? If the drift from godliness is the same, then in 30 years' time, First Peter will be even more relevant to Christians, suffering because they name Christ as Lord and activate their lordship in their lives. And there are so many indications in our own country, aren't there, that we may still name Jesus Christ as Lord but we may not activate that in every area of our lives. We must keep our personal convictions to personal convictions, and prejudice against God, His Word, and the gospel means that if you have other kinds of convictions, you are permitted to activate them. As long as we are willing to say, Jesus is Lord, but the state is also Lord, then we will, as people in the first century lived, relatively comfortable lives untroubled. Because if they could say secretly, yes, Jesus is my Lord, but publicly Caesar is Lord of my public life, then little would touch them. And of course, to outsiders it seemed a trivial matter. Many of you know the name of one of the early Christian martyrs, uh, an elderly man in his 80s who was publicly martyred simply because he would not say that Caesar is Lord. And so, in a sense, in this letter, there are, there are two questions meeting together. The first is the question, presumably, of these Christians spread throughout Turkey. Life is tough enough. We all suffer. But since we have become Christians, we have added suffering to suffering. It's often a surprise for Christians, isn't it? That in fact, 
life doesn't get easier because you become a Christian. You attract to yourself new challenges. And in one or two of the New Testament letters, it's fairly clear the question in mind is this. Is it at the end of the day all really worth it? The gospel good, but what comes with the gospel? Is, is, there, is there cash value in being a Christian when I am attracting not only suffering that I share with others, but the peculiar kind of suffering of Christian believers? And then, of course, there is the question Peter is asking. How do you write a letter to people in that situation who are asking, does the gospel outweigh the sufferings for the gospel that it attracts to my life? And as we've seen, whereas some of us at least probably would write to suffering Christians uh, by giving them a, a spoonful of commiseration. So sorry to hear that people are being nasty to you. What the Apostle Peter is teaching them and us is that at the end of the day, a spoonful of sympathy is not strong enough medicine for Christians who are suffering. The only medicine powerful enough to give strength to suffering Christians is so to hold out the privileges of the gospel, the privileges of grace to them, that they so savor those privileges, enjoy them, are energized by them, feel the power of them, that the sufferings that they go through, as Paul, you remember, says, by comparison, however sore they may be, by comparison, seem to us to be light and momentary. And so, what we've seen Peter do in these verses is to exult in the privileges of the gospel. One uh, commentator on this passage actually goes through the verses and numbers the privileges. He lists 11 privileges. So, you see what Peter is doing. Peter is raising up our affections to Christ in the gospel in order that those natural emotions and instincts that come because of trials and difficulties may be now seen as what they really are, small, weak, insignificant, by comparison with the privileges that are ours in Jesus Christ. We could, in a sense, reduce those 11 privileges to two. The first is that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the second, as Peter makes clear, is that even in the midst of these sufferings, there is a joy that begins to permeate the believer because of the power of the gospel an uplift in the midst of sorrow, a strengthening in the midst of suffering, and a great sense of the power and majesty of Jesus Christ and His absolute all-sufficiency. But actually, Peter himself summarizes these 11 privileges not under two headings, but by one word, 
And he repeats this word. It's used three times from verse 3 through to verse 12. What he has been describing in verses 3 to 10, he summarizes in the single word, salvation. Verse 5, you have been guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 9, you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, here is the simple exposition of the privileges of the Christian. Peter is saying, let me hold up to you what salvation is. And when you see what salvation is, when, you, when the privileges of salvation uh, become to, to drench your spirit, then you begin to become equipped to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, either in a pre-Christian world or a post-Christian world. And some of you, you know, you've been Christians for years and years, and you, you remember, particularly maybe in early days when you first took your baby steps and weren't very sure what an amazing thing it was to discover if you were a schoolboy or a schoolgirl and snide things were said behind your back. What an amazing thing it was to discover that Jesus Christ was immensely greater to you than any of the pain or harm that could be done by these things. Because as uh, Peter goes on to say in chapter 3, you knew what it was to reverence Him as Lord in your hearts. And so, as uh, people uh, showed little bits of opposition, uh, or said snide things, or, or did snide things, you were able to share this secret with the Lord Jesus. You're, they have no idea that your salvation is immensely greater than any harm they can do me, nor do they realize that through these light and momentary afflictions, they have become instruments in your hands to shape me and polish my graces and to make me more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is saying to us, and he's going on to say this in many different ways, dear ones as Christians who know what it is to have the salvation of God in our lives, we cannot be beaten down. We cannot be defeated. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And now, having done all this, he's, he's saying, just let me, let me just raise this up one degree higher. So, he's saying we have this privilege of salvation. He says, even now, he says, we are obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. It's almost as though he's saying, now, just hold that thought for a minute. It's as though he picks up salvation, and uh, he, he holds it up to the light as though it were a, a, a multifaceted jewel and as though he were a, a jeweler. And as he turns it round, he says, just, just, just have a wee look at that facet and that facet. Of course, I've never seen a jeweler do this, but, I, you know, I've, I've seen the shop assistant whip out the black cloth. You know, I wonder, what's the black cloth doing there? 
You know, are they worried about the glass and that the ring is going to scratch the glass? No. They bring out the black cloth because they want you to see the diamond sparkle, especially on the more expensive one, especially if you've gone together to get the ring. And he or she is saying, just look at that. And it's almost as though what Peter does here is he, he calls into the room a series of experts. And he says, it's almost as though he says to each of these experts in salvation, these people who, who have studied salvation, he says, now, tell the customer what it's really like, the salvation. And there are four of them, aren't there? The first one, obviously, is the Old Testament prophets. He says, now, part of the glory of the salvation is it was prophesied, it was promised by the Old Testament prophets. They prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, this grace of salvation in Jesus Christ. And then he says, now, look, look what it meant to them. Um, you know, we might, we might put it like this. Here is, here's the prophet Isaiah. He comes home at lunchtime. You know, he's been writing his prophecy, and, and uh, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, one of the wee boys, says to him, Dad, that book of yours, how far on are you? Oh, he says, I just started. I think they'll call this one chapter 53. And what were you writing about, Dad? Who has believed our report, and to whom was the arm of the Lord revealed? And I was writing this. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastening of our peace was upon him and with his stripes. We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. And Mahashal Hashba says, who is that dad? And does Isaiah say, you know, I've been thinking about that ever since, ever since I wrote in chapter 7 about the one who would be born of the virgin and in in chapter 9, whose name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Chapter 11, who, who would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 42 and 49 and 50. And Mahashalal Hashbaz, I guess he just called them Hashbaz for short, says to him, well, who is it, Dad? He says, son, I don't know. But what I do know is that that he's going to be the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Remember what we do at Passover, son? Or do you remember, do you remember that? Do you remember the first time I told you the story of Abraham taking Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him? Do you remember? I can still remember the tears in your eyes when, when, uh, when I told you the bit where, where he turns to Abraham, does Isaac, and he says, Dad, we've got everything for the sacrifice, but where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb. But I don't know when he's going to come. And I don't know who he is. But I'm spending the whole of my life believing that he's going to come and believing that when he comes, he's going to be the savior of the world. And and son, all I know is, if, if it's not in our day, then all of this, I'm writing all of this for the sake of others. And you see 
it was revealed to them, verse 12, they were serving not themselves, but you. C.S. Lewis has a marvelous illustration he uses of how does, the, how does all this, these prophecies, how, how does it relate to what we read about in the New Testament? And he says, imagine there was this magnificent symphony that was played all over the world, and people were in raptures about the music. It was the greatest music they had ever heard, and yet there were many things in the music that puzzled the experts, and they kept studying them, and there were hundreds of people who had written PhD theses on this symphony that had only three movements, and then suddenly somebody in in an old library somewhere in Germany dug out this old manuscript in this box that had scribbled on it Johann Sebastian Bach or something like that, and it was the final movement. And when they played the final movement, all the experts kind of sat back and they said, oh, that's what it was. None of us managed to work it out. But when we hear that, we we understand everything that was puzzling. And so you see, here are these prophets, and of course, Isaiah is the great one. But think about the way Daniel, remember in Daniel chapter 9, we're told a very interesting thing. Daniel was studying the prophecy of Jeremiah and wondering how it was all going to work out. And so here's Peter's first witness. He says, here are these towering spiritual giants who stood on mountains and looked into the future. Their passion for Jesus Christ was amazing, even although they realized that in what they were doing, they were ultimately preaching to those who were still unborn. And then he calls in a second witness, although the second witness is smuggled into the first one, isn't he? Concerning the salvation, says Peter, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Oh, he says there's a there's, there's another facet to this diamond of salvation. It's, it's not just great spiritual leaders like Isaiah. It's uh, the Holy Spirit Himself. And do you notice how He describes the Holy Spirit? There are two things about the description here that are hugely significant. The first is, He says that the Spirit who worked through Isaiah was the Spirit of Christ. In other words, he is saying, just as the Father is the same all the way through the Bible, although it's not so clear in the Old Testament Scriptures, so the Old Testament Scriptures, these prophecies, are not just the fruit, he says this in his his next letter, not just the fruit of what Isaiah thinks about things, one man's opinion. He says, in the mystery of God's providential working, whenever Isaiah caught sight of the coming Savior, it was actually the Holy Spirit who was working 
in his life. And the other thing that's really interesting is this, that this is one place in the New Testament where the New Testament assumes that the Spirit of Christ indwelt believers in the Old Testament. Some of you maybe have been brought up in a tradition where there's been a great deal of argument and disagreement about that, but Peter makes it plain, doesn't he? It was the Spirit of Christ in them who predicted the sufferings and the glory of the Messiah. Now, what was it that the Spirit of Christ was predicting? In our English versions, I'm using the English Standard Version, perhaps most of you are using the New International Version, and the language is something like this. The Spirit of Christ was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, which suggests that the translators assumed that what the Spirit was pointing these prophets to was what Christ has done for us on the cross and the glory into which He has entered. The one slight question about that is that Peter uses most unusual language here. for those of you who are interested in technicalities, he doesn't use the genitive case, the sufferings of Christ. He uses a preposition, the sufferings into Christ, or the sufferings related to Christ. And it's possible, therefore, that actually what he is saying is, listen, when the Spirit bears testimony to the gospel, it's not only to what God has done in Christ, it's to what through Christ God is going to do in you. It's about the sufferings that you will experience in relationship to Jesus Christ and the glories that will follow. Well, which is it? Well, why just take one? Calvin, for example, says, I think it's probably both, that believers are so united to Jesus Christ that when the Spirit predicted the sufferings and glories of Christ, everything that the Spirit predicted would be true of the head, would, as it were, trickle down into the members. And you know, if that's what Peter means to say. That's what Peter is actually saying. He knew what he was saying. If that's what Peter is saying, isn't that a great strengthening? That's that's perhaps the, the single most important perspective that the New Testament gives us on any suffering we go through, but especially suffering we may experience because we belong to Jesus Christ that actually it's part and parcel of belonging to Him. Remember how the apostles, when they suffered early on um, and, and came out of prison for suffering for Jesus Christ? I don't know whether somebody in the New Testament church was just like most of us and said, oh, so sorry you went through all this. So, these people are so terrible, throwing Christians into prison. It's just absolutely disgraceful. I'm going to write to the Times about it. 
No, they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name. And we need to understand when the New Testament uses that expression, worthy, it doesn't mean what your average mainstream church member thinks it means. Oh, now I'm worthy. You know, I'm, I'm at least into the 60% category. Or for those of you who are Americans, into the 95% category. No, it means that as God has worked in my life, He has seen that because I'm Christ's, I'm suited to, it's appropriate for me to suffer with Christ because I really am Christ. I mean, that's, that's such a total reversal, isn't it? And, and the great thing is a complete reversal of what the world thinks it's doing to Christians when it makes them suffer. That's why it can't understand Christians. And we need to understand worldly people cannot understand Christians. Whether they like Christians or not is a secondary matter. They can't understand Christians because they never think about being worthy to suffer. They think about being worthy not to suffer. That's why perhaps if you've gone through the mill and one of your well-meaning friends has said, can't understand why such a good Christian as you are is suffering. It's because you belong to Jesus Christ. And so instead of sending these early Christians into a great panic, why is this, why is this suffering coming to us? Later on, people say, don't be surprised. And you may remember this great, wonderful discovery from your earlier Christian days when, when it dawned on you, if I'm going through this, it must be because somehow or another people are associating me with the Savior that they're also rejecting. Isn't that amazing? That anyone would look at my life, anything about my poor life, and, and say, even if, they, even if they couldn't articulate it, there's something about him I've got to close down. But then, of course, he brings forward another marvelous witness. And this time, it's the preachers of the gospel. Perhaps the apostles, but probably in this case, not the apostles, probably not Peter, but those who had been uh, scattered, perhaps originally from Jerusalem or from other centers of gospel witness, he says, it was revealed to the prophets that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. I said, just listen to the preachers. Just listen to Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. What does he think about salvation? Oh, he glories in the salvation that there is in Jesus Christ. What does he say to his own people? He says, there is no other name under heaven given amongst men in which we can find salvation. And that's the message that came to you. And you notice that uh, he weaves the Holy Spirit into this as well. The prophets provide us with the Scriptures. 
the preachers provide us with the messages, but it's the Spirit who provides us with the illumination. Remember how Paul says this about his visit to the Thessalonians? How the Word of God came to them in the power of the Holy Spirit. These things, he says. Do you notice he uses that expression right at the end of the verse? These things, the good news preached through the messengers of the gospel and the power of the Spirit sent from heaven, these things. Now, that's a particularly interesting phrase because it appears fascinatingly in the 24th chapter of Luke's gospel. You remember the conversation, Cleopas and his Mrs. Cleopas, probably? And Jesus meets them on uh, Easter Sunday. And uh, they speak to him about the things that happened in Jerusalem. You know, they're sore. They can hardly bring themselves to, to speak about it. Are you the only person who doesn't know about the things that happened in Jerusalem? And Jesus says, <laughs> What things? What things? And they go on to give one of the most beautiful, simple expositions of the gospel anywhere in the New Testament. If anyone asks you what the gospel is, you go to 1 Corinthians 15, go to Luke 24, and these two who don't yet recognize that the Lord is with them, give the Lord, I mean, it's almost amusing, they give the Lord Jesus a beautiful, they preach the gospel to Jesus, not knowing, not recognizing who He is. And then, of course, their eyes are opened. You know, I'm not saying that uh, Peter had read Luke's gospel. It would be nice to think that. But what he's saying here is that what happens when the gospel is preached, when these things are preached, now Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, opens our eyes, touches our affections, bows our wills, draws our hearts to Himself. And we say, as we, as we hear the preaching of the gospel, our hearts burned within us. It, it, the preacher is, as it were, like the anonymous Jesus. No idea who it is explaining the Bible to them. It's almost unbelievable, isn't it? He, he, I mean, he gives them this, you know, how long a sermon was it, kind of personal exposition of the Old Testament Scriptures from Jesus Himself. And, uh, you know, they're all that time, they, they don't, they have no idea who it is. And often that happens, isn't it? Your heart burns within you. And the Holy Spirit doesn't, the Holy Spirit doesn't turn up at your front door at nine o'clock on a Sunday night and say, excuse me, but you've not acknowledged that this morning and this evening your heart was burning within you because I was doing it. But it is the Holy Spirit who's doing it. So it's not the preacher who's doing it. It can't be the preacher. It cannot be the preacher. No, it can't be the preacher. How do I know that? Because I'm the preacher. I know it can't be the preacher. It's the Spirit. And you see what he's doing, he's saying, through the preaching, 
what He did through the prophets, although the amazing thing is, He says, don't tell Isaiah, I'm telling you a lot more than I told him. And we see Christ. And we can get on to the next sermon. No, we can't. No, we can't. Because he has these few words at the end. This, this, just, this, this catches you between the eyes. This, if, if you had written this, you would never, ever in a hundred years have finished the sentence this way, I don't think. And he says, oh, by the way, I have another, another witness here. In fact, there are thousands and thousands of them. This gospel is so great that even angels who do not need that gospel because they have never sinned, who therefore have never tasted what you have tasted into this privilege of salvation, even the angels of heaven long to look. And here's an interesting thing again, and uh, I think it's pretty certain that Peter had not read John's gospel when he wrote this latter, but the the verb he uses here is the verb that John uses twice in John chapter 20 when Mary arrives at the garden tomb and she stoops down and she she looks into the tomb. And remember, she saw angels there. And then, of course, later on, when the two apostles come, same language is used. It's like, you know, do angels have necks? Medieval theologians seriously did discuss how many angels could dance on pinheads. And personally, I think that's an an inherently fascinating question. (laughs) But he's saying that they're they're stooping down. You can almost hear them in heaven saying, can can you see? You you know, are angels allowed to kind of friendly nudge each other, you know, like in the tea and coffee line? Just let me get a better look. And of course, this is this, in a sense, is is uh, what lies behind the gospel narrative, isn't it? Of the angels who God doesn't often allow this with His angels in the Bible. There are likely to be more angelic appearances in the local Christian bookstore at least the last time I was in one there were, than there are in the Scriptures. Very rarely does He allow more than one angel at a time to go down and see. But they are on the plains of Bethlehem, a whole army of them. And then when Jesus had gone through the, the struggles of the wilderness temptation, He was ministered to by an angel. And then, of course, as he agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane, before the end of that agony, before the climax of the agony, an angel came to strengthen him. And on the cross, what could he sense on the cross when he said, it will only take a a word from me and, and an entire army of angels will come and rescue me? Or should it surprise us that when Mary looked down and peered into the tomb, 
there were, there were a couple of angels sitting there. I mean, what a picture. You know, surprise, surprise. What are you doing here? I mean, she wasn't the kind of person who would ask that. Some people would actually ask that question, wouldn't they? They, they rush in where angels fear to tread. What are you doing here? Ah, uh, we've come to see. We are the two who were allowed to come down and bring the report home. And then as he returns into heaven, you remember, uh, there's another angelic message. Just the, the, the apostles are staring, looking into heaven as Jesus has Jesus gone up there into heaven and, and there are angels present there. And when he comes again in glory, there will be angels present. Why? Well, partly to show his glory, but also partly, as Peter says, because these angels never have, never do, and never will taste what we have tasted. They'll never know what it means to be a fallen sinner who has been loved by Jesus Christ and saved by His precious blood and will for all eternity be able to look on Jesus. Yes, the angels and we will together be able to say, look at our King. But there is a unique sense in which as Christians we will be able to say for all eternity, yes, and our King came to bring us salvation. Do you notice what's, what's interesting here? Uh, David was speaking about uh, somebody who had said, you know, one of the nice things about, uh, about, about listening to you preach, I mean, to David was, I don't leave with five things I need to do. And you notice that Peter hasn't told us to do anything yet. He's about to. But he understands how the gospel works. He understands that when we're facing difficulty and opposition, what we most need is five tactics you need to have to be able to dodge suffering and to avoid opposition and to take your opportunity to be a witness as well. No, what you need to do is feel the sheer massive weight of the gospel because this gospel sheds its light on absolutely everything, doesn't it? It sheds its light on our sorrows. It sheds its light on our sickness. It sheds its light on our sufferings. And it sheds its light on any, any opposition. Because inwardly, when the world turns against us. We are the only people on earth who are able to say with any humility to the world, although don't do it too often. You've really no idea who I am, have you? You have no concept that all that you are doing to destroy my faith is simply making me press in closer to Jesus Christ and to say to him, Lord Jesus, thank you for this great salvation.
And so here they are. And here's the jewel. And uh, if you've any wisdom in this jeweler's store of the gospel, then you want to say to the jeweler, to the assistant, which is what preachers are. They are, they are shop assistants in jeweler's stores. I'll have that one. And I'm going to wear it for the rest of my life. Salvation is the engagement ring to Jesus until I feast with him face to face at the marriage banquet of the Lamb. Well, that should keep us going for the next 18 hours, don't you think? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you again for the riches of the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can bask in it and soak in it. We thank you that it pours down upon us, that we are, that we are overwhelmed with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we think with Peter about the way in which you have planned this from time immemorial and how you have steadily revealed what your Son, our Savior, would do and how these great men who have pointed to him have been in a way content and yet longing that they could understand the things that you've revealed to them. And now we know them through your Holy Spirit, and we are the object of the amazement of the angels that their King would do what He did on the cross for the likes of us. And with all our hearts, we praise You and pray that You would strengthen us through Your Word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to finish our worship by singing um, the song. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.